The news for 16 July begins with this story of a pest across our nation. More Nero fiddling. In the garish light of a flaming Federation display, there are persons who seem to be unconscious of the most weighty events occurring under their very noses. The mischief has been at the border. It has crossed the border. Pastoralists nearest to it or already suffering from it have been fighting it as men fight a prairie fire, if not to put it out, at least to prevent its speed. And they've had to do so at their own cost, a cost which has been almost the last straw on the already crushed camel. Finally, as if despairing of being able to keep the enemy at bay, they cry to Jupiter, they ask that all the power of all the persons immediately interested be brought to their aid. If it is not, their own efforts may be wholly inadequate. The country will be overrun, and then every sufferer will have to fight for his own hand, instead of merely looking on, as many pastoralists do now. It is absolutely safe to say that present means will not suffice to check the northward march of the rabbit. And if that would suffice, it is most unfair to make present sufferers bear all the burden defending the entire country by defending their own holdings. For years, the whole of this country has been threatened with the rabbit pest. Yes, this story of bunnies taking over Australia comes to us from The Telegraph in Brisbane. For July 16, 1900, this was the news. that takes the news from this date many years ago and shares it with you in one update. I'm Broderick Matthews, bringing you stories that have hopped off the newspapers of old. Welcome to this week's episode of This Was The News, coming from 1900 on this date, July 16. We kicked off with a story about the pest that was dominating the nation, and that was the rabbit. But on this day back in 1900, the news that was dominating the papers was that of the newly named Governor-General of Australia. This piece from the South Australian Register. His Excellency Lord Tennyson received a despatch from the Colonial Office on Saturday to the effect that Her Majesty had been pleased to approve of the appointment of the Earl of Hopeton as the first Governor-General of Federated Australia. Our own cable messages state that the selection of Lord Hopeton for the post has been officially announced in London and that Her Majesty's representative expects to arrive in Australia in the second week in December. Captain Wallington, who leaves on Thursday for London, has been appointed Private Secretary to Lord Hopeton and will probably return with him in December. Yes, that's right, Australia wasn't yet federated at this point in 1900. It was due to happen in January 1901. So at this point in time, there was a lot of excitement around the Governor-General and it was all across the country. This piece from the Bendigo Advertiser. The First Governor-General The appointment of the Earl of Hopeton as the first Governor-General of the Australasian Commonwealth will be received with satisfaction throughout the Federating States. 
Lord Hopeton practically served his apprenticeship as a representative of royalty when he occupied the position of Governor of Victoria. And it can be said, without fear of contradiction, that Victoria never had a more popular governor. He was quite a young man when he succeeded the late Lord Locke in 1889, and if his term of office was intended in any way to afford him an experience of the duties of Viceroyalty, it was fortunate that Victoria was selected, for it is recognised that this colony is one of the most constitutionally governed amongst the numerous dependencies of the Empire. Politically, Lord Hopeton's term of office was not marred by any unpleasantness or rendered irksome by the occurrence of any difficult constitutional problems, such as those which rendered an earlier period of our history notable. It was his misfortune, however, to witness the disasters of the boom period, but the experiences through which Victoria passed gave Lord Hopeton a splendid insight into the character of the people, and he was filled with admiration of the manner in which thousands, who had lost all they possessed, practically began life over again. Lord Hopeton was held in high esteem throughout Australia, and it is well known that this friendly feeling is reciprocated by him. Under the circumstances, it is by no means surprising that he should accept the position of First Governor-General of Australia. He is to be congratulated upon achieving so distinguished an honour, and the Imperial Government is also to be congratulated on the happy selection it has made. Clearly some excitement there from the Victorian paper in Bendigo that uh, their former Governor is coming back to be the first Governor-General. And that excitement was shown once again in a cross-border celebration that was reported in the Goulburn Herald. An interesting demonstration in celebration of the passage of the Commonwealth Bill by the British Parliament took place on Friday night at Albury. A procession from Albury, consisting of members of the Municipal Council, public bodies and the general public, headed by the town band, marched to the Union Bridge, where it was met by a similar procession from Wodonga. A number of congratulatory speeches were delivered and the bridge was beautifully decorated with flags and Chinese lanterns. Yes, celebrations from either side of the Victoria-New South Wales border People staying on their own sides, though, by the sounds of it, which uh, sounds a bit like right now. Speaking of state borders, this piece from the Herald in Melbourne talks about where the Governor-General might end up residing. Whatever may be the other little trifles to be settled before the Commonwealth is proclaimed, the New South Wales Government seem determined that upstart Melbourne shall be favoured as little as possible with the light of the Governor-General's countenance. He is, according to Sir William Lyne, to land in Sydney and at once take up his official residence there in Government House, the Governor to be provided for at a moment's notice and apparently with little regard to his convenience. The Governor-General will be graciously allowed to visit Melbourne occasionally when the Federal Parliament is sitting there, but in Sydney, and Sydney alone, must be his chief residence. Well, modesty, like virtue, is often its own reward, and our good friends on the other side of the border... Remember, this is Victoria talking to New South Wales... 
as our friends on the other side of the border may find, as we have already pointed out, that the Governor-General himself has something to say on this point, which will probably be settled by him with tact and discretion. Of course, the Government of New South Wales is quite within its rights in making every effort to induce the Federal Parliament to shift their home to that colony, but it is rather amusing to find the Premier assuring his people that his government will make up its mind where the federal capital is to be, forgetting, probably, that the delicate little point in question has to be settled by the federal parliament itself. And that charm New South Wales ever so wisely, its members may like to dally a while in that, to every good Sydney politician, much detested Melbourne. Yes, a good start place to start as we head into Federation with the states arguing amongst each other, which is why we ended up settling the capital in neither Sydney or Melbourne. Let's take a short break now with these advertisements. When clouds appear, wise men put on their cloaks. So wrote Shakespeare. And if this is the only preparation people make for a wet day, no wonder so many suffer with influenza. In order to guard against colds, we must be suitably shod. See Pet & Co's splendid stock of seasonable footgear. That's Pet & Co's seasonable footgear. The bubonic plague in Sydney is causing great anxiety, and considering the number of cases, this is not to be wondered at. During the prevalence of the terrible plague in Hong Kong, the greatest relief was obtained by the use of Folding's eucalyptus oil. That's Folding eucalyptus oil, according to Government Report 5047. Back to the news now from 1900 on July 16 and while the papers were dominated with the talk of Federation and the first Governor-General of Australia to come in a few months' time, in many ways Australia was already working together and we were off fighting in the Boer War in support of England at this point in time. This piece in the Goulburn Herald from New South Wales talks about the influence of the war on our Australian character. A correspondent writes as follows to the leisure hour. In a former letter, I told you with what enthusiasm the Australian colonies were uniting to send a representative force to the Cape. Since then, it has been shown that, as the war assumed greater proportions, the colonies could provide the very type of men required, and contingent after contingent has been sent off with an ever-increasing martial fervour. No one here doubted that our men would acquit themselves creditably if opportunity were given, and many believed that they would show bravery of the highest order. Some, however, thought that they would be too rash and impulsive. To the surprise of all, they've manifested a steadiness in the moment of danger worthy of seasoned veterans. The same thing has been noticeable on a larger scale in the colonies themselves. There's been no lamentation over reverses, and not a doleful line has appeared in any newspaper of first rank. 
there has been instead a quiet yet striking determination on the part of the people to persevere in helping the mother country to the end. On the other hand, many have been surprised when the Australians have especially distinguished themselves at the absence of unnecessary exultation, and while the doing of our boys are spoken of with pride, there has been no boasting. Australians have never known the awfulness of war on their own soil, and now, when their sons die in South Africa, and they recognise themselves as twin brothers to the ragged and starving but gallant band of Lady Smith, it has softened them wonderfully, and there can be no doubt of the fact that there has been a truer recognition of the divine hand in national affairs. The one thing necessary in the judgment of many was the participation in some struggle in which we should learn the value of kinship with a great people and the value of all the privileges that such kinship brings. Now that Australia is producing heroes from the ranks of her own native-born, the true note of patriotism has been struck with lasting effect. An interesting article there, and certainly trying to well up the pride of what is soon to be a new Australia, but I feel like it bears pointing out that native-born Australians that they're talking about here are certainly not the Indigenous people who were living on our lands before, and... uh, they potentially might have something to say of war on Australian soil when the uh, European settlers first arrived. But for now, we'll continue to reflect the papers of the day back in 1900, and this piece on the South Australian Register talked up the work of the Australian Bushmen over in the Boer War. Dispatches from Bloemfontein mention a sensational conflict that took place a day or two ago on the road to Bethlehem in the Orange River colony. A force of Boers, by creeping silently through a mealy field, took by surprise the 38th Battery of Field Artillery, which was proceeding to Bethlehem. The enemy, in a remarkably short space of time, killed two of the British officers, wounded 18 men and clashed off with one of the guns. A party of Australian bushmen were in the vicinity and they were ordered to try to recover the field piece. The task was exactly to their liking. The gallant fellows obeyed the command with alacrity and, being well mounted, got home upon the enemy in a charge the eyewitnesses describe as superb. The gun was recaptured and the Boers driven off with severe loss. Yes, the Australians helping out the British there in the field. Now, potentially some of the British troops may have been struggling a little with this report out of London being reproduced in the Queensland Telegraph. The Daily Mail this morning reports that many of the British troops, now at Pretoria, are now virtually barefooted their boots having been worn out. The War Office authorities are, however, sceptical as to the truth of this statement and assert that 800,000 pairs of boots have been despatched for the troops in South Africa. And with that, we might leave the war news and head off to some local news from around the papers. First up, a story of a mad cow from the Goulburn Herald. Some consternation was caused in Hyde Park, Sydney last week by the antics of a cow suffering from temporary insanity. The cow was lost a few days ago and was found in Government House grounds. 
She was driven along College Street to Alexandria when something startled her sensitive nerves and she bolted into Hyde Park. People began waving hats and sticks and umbrellas at the cow and the result was that she became very active. John Mackay, who resides in Victoria Street, Balmain, was tossed by the animal. In falling, he received a painful injury to one of his eyes and he had to be treated at the Sydney Hospital. By and by, the cow tamed down and was led safely out of the park. Hard to conceive of a cow suddenly appearing in Hyde Park nowadays, but this was what was happening back in 1900. In other Sydney news, this story of a particular lady was reported in the Australian Star. Said a lady charged at the Central Police Court on Saturday with having overindulged in Liverpool Street on Friday evening, she said, Liverpool Street? Liverpool, did you say? Oh, no, sir, that's quite wrong, I assure you. Pitt Street it may have been, but not Liverpool, sir. It was not indeed. Why she particularised the exact locality of the committal of her indiscretion was not apparent, for the same penalty did for either place, or any place in the radius, but there are some people who are never satisfied. Finally, speaking of uh, overindulgence, this piece in the Sydney Morning Herald of some honour for an Australian product. Royal warrants have been issued appointing Messrs Joshua Brothers of Australia to supply boomerang brandy to the households of Her Majesty the Queen, the Prince of Wales and the Duke of York. There you go, nothing better than a boomerang brandy to tuck you in of the evening. And uh, with that bit of product placement, let's have a few advertisements. Taken hot at bedtime. Medical men in Paris recommend the use of warm alcoholic drinks for the cure of influenza and colds. The best, most reliable and agreeable remedy for these distressing ailments is wolf's schnapps. It should be taken hot with a little lemon at bedtime. Wolf's schnapps is the purest spirit in the world. Wolf's the real schnapps. Men's hats at half cost. A queer thing to do this, and you wonder why we do it? This is why. We were the successful tenderers for Mr Charles Morris stock and secured these plums at such ridiculous prices that we've determined to offer during our sale so long as our present stock lasts. Hats. Usual price 10 and 6, it's now 5 and 6. If it was 7 and 6, it's now 4 and 6. If it was 4 and 6, it's now 1 shilling and 11 pence. We should prefer to have 600 men buy one apiece to 100 men buying six apiece, but we won't restrict you. Come and see our windows. Alex Millian Sons, 7 and 9 Bridge Street, clearance sale proceeding. We're coming towards the end of the news for July 16, 1900, but I wanted to finish off with a couple of pieces on the advances in technology. This piece on the electric light scheme was reported in the Telegraph from Brisbane, Queensland. 
During an interview with a representative of the Telegraph on Saturday last, Mr E. A. Cullen of the Harbours and Rivers Department, who's just returned from a visit to Europe and America, referred to the proposals which had been laid before the Brisbane Municipal Council for the electric lighting of the city. Amongst other places of call during his round trip, he went to Paris, primarily to consult Messrs Sorter, Hurl and Co, with reference to some very important developments in lighthouse illumination, about to be perfected by the firm. There, Mr Cullen said, I had the opportunity of seeing the most brilliantly lighted street of the best lighted city in the world. This great result in street lighting is obtained by means of incandescent gas mantles, some six inches in length, and about as thick round as an ordinary tumbler, being illuminated by gas under very high pressure. The system was exceedingly cheap, and the lamps were placed very close together, about 50 feet apart, thus producing the result named. He thought it strange if the council intended to agree to the proposals of the electric light company when they had a far cheaper method in their own hands, and a far better one. In Paris, and indeed many other cities, they had practically abandoned the electric light system as being so much inferior and more expensive than the incandescent gas illumination. Yes, folks... 1900, who wants to make way for electricity when gas lamps are clearly so much better? Yes, it's sometimes interesting to look back and think about how technology ever did progress, but it does. And from a piece about sticking with the technology you've got, this piece on pressing on to another marble was also in the same Telegraph from Brisbane, Queensland. With feverish haste, this age of marbles presses on from each new marble to another, more marvellous still. Only the other day we learned that aerial locomotion was an established fact, and now we are told, ere our wonderment has time to subside, that a new torpedo boat has been driven through the water at the enormous speed of 43 miles an hour. Yes, getting very excited about a boat that can go 70 kilometres an hour. The article continues. When it was suggested that as much as 20 miles an hour was possible as a minimum speed for this class of boat, everybody smiled incredulously. With the present instance before us, we should now feel inclined to believe if 100 miles per hour were suggested. What do these wonderful inventions portend? Time, space and distance are threatened with annihilation by them. I'll put a girdle round the earth in 40 minutes, said the sprite Puck. Man will do it in less if the present rate of advancement continues. And at this point in time, we can only wish to travel round the earth in 40 minutes. But who knows? Maybe technology will progress and we'll find another marvel one day soon. And with that wondering on technological advancement and speeding round the world... We come to the end of today's bulletin. For July 16, 1900, this was the news.
Was the News is a podcast spoken and edited by Broderick Matthews. All source material is taken from the reference newspapers and found online through the National Library of Australia's Trove website. Links to each of the articles mentioned today can be found in the show notes. The theme music is from Beethoven's Symphony No. 6 and sourced under public domain from newsopen.org. If you enjoyed today's show, make sure to subscribe and review it on iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcasting app. This Was The News can be followed on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and any email correspondence should be sent to thiswasthenews at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to today's episode. The next episode will be out in a fortnight, released on Thursday 30th of July. I'm Broderick Matthews and this was The News.